Welcome to the Way Life Should Be podcast. Inspiring stories of people who are making the world a better place, the qualities that guide them, and lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Lauren Lombard. recording. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I am here with my friend Abdul Dire, and I'm really glad that you made the time to come out and um, spend some time talking about your story and um, sharing about the current projects you're working on. So I'm excited to learn more about your story and the things that you have to share with us today, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I kind of want to just start at the beginning of um, where you, where you're from, mm-hmm. and um, how you, um, yeah, the intervening years that brought you to Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So I was born in, I was born and grew up in Ethiopia, southern Ethiopia. Um, so I come from a family of my mom had 10 children. I'm number five. And um, my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, <coughs> raised me. So she raised me and um, baby number one for my mom, my sister. And I grew up so at the house of my grandmother, a family of three, and went to school there, um, elementary and middle school, and started high school. And then I, I came to the United States 19 winters ago. Wow. <laughs> the past that brought me there was um, I was living with my uncle, uh, uh, who is you know my uh, grandmother's um, son. So he he was involved in politics. He ran for parliament and so forth in 1990s, and so he was persecuted by the government because he was vocal about the government, mm-hmm. and so the government was going after him. So. He had to leave the country and I left with him. So we lived in Kenya for some time and came to Minnesota. Uh, so like I said, 19 years ago. So we lived in St. Paul for a while, moved to Minneapolis, and now I live in Woodbury was, was, uh, was my family. Wonderful. So when you were growing up in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. um, you were attending school and did you have an idea what you wanted to do with your life when you grew up or kind of what were your thoughts do you remember not absolutely clear um when i was maybe like uh seven or eight i wanted to be a pilot Mm. right um i've seen some pilot who from time to time came to our town Um, so i wanted to be a pilot um so that kind of um fizzled uh, you know when I when I got to school like middle school I start I loved uh, biology um, so uh, maybe from that point onward I wanted to be uh, you know medical doctor uh, mm-hmm. of some sort because it's, a, it's also an aspiration for many people and many young people um, so when I came to US so I actually wanted to explore that further I volunteered at Regent Hospital um, for about a year actually and and I decided I 
is I don't think the medical field was for me. It's just too difficult, many difficult situations that you have to deal with. So I didn't think that was for me. So uh, as I was going to school here in the United States, um, I also did an internship with a Fortune 500 company uh, in, in Minnesota. So people I worked with were scientists, material scientists, chemists, and so forth. So kind of looked into that field for a while, and I ended up doing material science and engineering uh, at the U, uh, later on master's in management of technology. So I didn't really know, but kind of experiences pushed me in that direction later on. That's interesting. Uh, tell me a little bit more about growing up in Ethiopia. I want to know, like, what what did your life look like? Um, yeah. You were you said you were living with your grandmother. Yeah. With one of your siblings. Yeah. And um, what was your day to day like? Yeah. So when I when I joined um, <clears throat> my sister at my grandma's house, so she's actually two years away from marriage. So I call it. The reason I, I came to that house was succession plan. So basically, oh, yeah. my my sister is about to get married. So for two years, that transition time, and she kind of uh, she lived in the same town, but married and moved on, right? So I'm I'm there to to help my grandmother. So my day to day would look like um, I would get up and make tea or you know breakfast, um, or my grandmother would do that, for example. And then I would go to school, right? And usually the school had two shifts, like a morning and afternoon. So I would go to the morning shift. Um, by the time we're done around maybe 2 p.m. or so, um, I'm straight home. So my grandmother is a um, very strong-willed uh, um, woman. So I would come home and I, w- I do whatever is needed. So cleaning, um, uh, chores house chores right so I'm really involved in 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 helping her whatever that's needed Um, and when I'm done with that I do my homework and um, my 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 city is called Bidre Um, at that time didn't have electricity so I would do my homework before sun goes down Um, so at night so we would have um, um, uh, what do you call um, um, candles uh, or uh, kerosene lamp, whatever. So basically, we just have story time with my grandmother. Um, mm. So that's that's kind of what the day so, would look like. So once the the sun went down yeah. and there was no light or yeah. um, ability to study, you would hear stories from your grandmother and, and other relatives potentially. Yes. yes. Were they? F- stories of family members or history of the country or the area or do you know like did she like also make up some of the stories or were they more like family folklore or kind of it's a family folklore uh most of the time and some of it is poetic and nothing really not things that probably happened to them um things that she heard when she was little Mm. So uh, mm-hmm. we, we live in the southern part of Ethiopia, and she was born and, and actually grew up on the northern uh, central part of Ethiopia. So she has a whole different uh, set of stories that actually people in the south don't have. So mm. her, her stories are kind of unique, so she would share that 
uh, stories with us. So, uh. Do you feel like you gained that love of storytelling or a gift of storytelling from having grown up with that? Uh, not really. I was, I was never good at that. <laughs> that's that's the, the way she does. She, she is funny and she can, she can tell stories and very elaborate. Uh, my stories tend to be very short. Uh, so very I, I, loved, I loved listening to her. And so a lot of my time was not so much repeating or practicing my own stories. A lot of it's just r- listening and absorbing, hers. trying to absorb her stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a really... Um, really need it's a treasure to have those memories because i know Mm -hmm. especially kind of in the society we're in here it's that um the generational family unit isn't Mm -hmm. always very um available or well preserved yes Um, people live in different places and you know the different generations aren't always involved Mm -hmm. in the children's lives and so it's neat to to have that legacy that is handed down through stories and um and those memories you have with your grandmother yeah i really love those stories because my my other grandmother my my father's mom so i didn't get to see my uh, in in both my grandparents my uh, grandfathers so she would also tell me stories of my grandfather on the other side so i as a young uh, person growing up i really enjoyed those stories neat so you said that your sister was about to get married. Was it the age that she was at that was a time for her to get married? Or was she kind of in a, in a courtship that she was, you know, knew someone that she was wanting to marry? Or how did it work? Mm-hmm. Um, it it was pretty much an age thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and somebody did ask. So the way it would work is um, somebody who's interested would um, approach the, the family uh, of the bride and ask uh, for the hand. So there is whole protocol and procedure for, for on how to ask for, for, um, uh, for a girl. And so that procedure started and sometimes it could take up to two years, sometimes it could be short within a few months. In this case, it kind of went on for a couple of years, and that was because mostly because of her age. Because of her age, yeah. And she she was at the time at the age she could marry, um, probably eighteen, mm-hmm. maybe a little older. Um, and somebody did show up to ask for her, so it's not like it, that combination of the age and somebody who's going to ask for. Yeah. Her so were some of those procedural things um, to prove himself, like if a young man wanted to ask for a girl's hand did he have to um do certain things that would prove himself or was it a combination Mm -hmm. of um his education or his you know income or his status in society or kind of what were some of those things that impacted so first the person uh his family not you know he can't just speak for himself right so his family from his tribe has to approach the tribe of the girl and by sending basically so the elders, elders, the elders, had to meet? The okay. elders has to meet. So the, so they would ask for permission from the girl's family to come, mm-hmm. um, to, uh, to ask. And so they would, uh, these elders would come in and just that the first one, the first meeting was more of like, yeah, we're, we have interest and, and there is just in 
in the in the in the culture there is a way to receive that and there is a specific word they need to say and then uh, they from the girls fa- family they will ask who, who's young man maybe sometimes they know sometimes they don't know they would ask who this person is and what is he up to um you know um is he someone who kind of track record of um, generating income stable um, responsible person um, so first time they will say probably they will think about it and you know the the father would say I would think about I will consult with my family and then they go back uh, and then they make another appointment um, you know to come and the family in the meantime would discuss and see if this is something Gather that they want to. Yes. <laughs> was there also input from the elders on whether they felt this was a good match or did they just kind of be mediators, like help connect the, the two parties? The family decides. So the elders are just there to, to convey um, that this person asked for this person. And... You know, the family has to decide mm. on whether they, they like this proposal or not. Very interesting. Was there also a dowry that was expected or mm-hmm. gifts to the family? And Yeah. In, in the Oromo culture, which I come from, right, in uh-huh. Ethiopia, yeah. um, all of these things are, uh, there are, there are gifts, a specific um, gift that things you bring on day one. Uh, the dowry would be probably later when mm-hmm. um, everything is decided and wedding wedding is about to. So go this is on. still in the convincing phase. Yes, it's still in the convincing phase. So you're, they're not sure about the young man. Yeah. There's some back and forth. Yes. And he comes bringing gifts. They'll bring coffee. They will bring salt, sugar, uh, some little gift. Is it like specific beginning. gifts on specific uh, day one? It's it's you bring coffee and day yeah, two, like nothing major on the first on the first uh-huh. ask. So nothing really major, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So just a little. Yeah, just something (laughs) little. (laughs) Face yourself. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I'm just fascinated learning things like that from different cultures that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's. um, There's so much tradition and. um, And just the the way the entire culture enters into it, I think Mm -hmm. is really. Or Mm -hmm. the the community enters into it is is really fascinating so um yeah Yeah. so you then you lived uh your sister got married you Mm -hmm. were living with your grandmother Mm -hmm. for a while and Mm -hmm. then you and your uncle left to kenya Mm -hmm. so how long were you in kenya Uh, about a year and a half about a year and a half Mm -hmm. and what was life like there were you refugees in kenya because i knew you said he was escaping political yeah. persecution mm-hmm. um, in Ethiopia. What was it like living in Kenya? So going to Kenya, getting to Kenya was an adventure of itself. So families kind of separated. We all went in different um, batches, if you will. So my uncle and some of his family left earlier. For so safety? For safety purpose. Mm-hmm. So literally you have to have... Um, at a different and a different alien uh, name and ID and so forth, and you have to travel by night. Some of it on foot. Um, in my case, when I when I left, um, so I basically have to get a different ID and uh, look like you know I'm a merchant uh, on on that route. 
So because the, cover, the government checks from time to time people who travel mm-hmm. and why they travel and so forth. Um, and then, you know, finally I got to this um, city, um, uh, Moyele, the border city uh, between Ethiopia and Kenya. Um, and then, you know, my family from there keep, you know, they, they would say, call that person, that person, you know, would you take care of, you know, our son and so forth. And I got to the family who was supposed to help us. But then um, from there also, it's now once you cross the border, people speak different language. So the Oromo language, the thing I need to set um, for the background is Oromo, the Oromo people are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And they also live in northern Kenya. Mm-hmm. They live in okay. Somalia and in the surrounding countries, mm-hmm. right? So first when I crossed over the border, I was kind of surprised that actually people speak uh, Oromo language. So because the Burana Oromos live still on that side. Um, so some of the people I interacted with, the, the Garris and the Boranas, would speak the Romo language. I was able to converse with them. But they hustle, right? So it's mm-hmm. about uh, a lot of refugees and people who are persecuted are going through this place. And s- some of them will take advantage of, um, you know, they want to make a few bucks here and there. So they will do whatever they need to do mm-hmm. to be able to get mm-hmm. that. Um, so it took me about two weeks for me to, to leave from that border city. Um, I, I, I would say it was, was a family, so daily, basically, I have to pay these um, people here and there for their daily chat, you know, the stuff they chew, uh, almost a, uh, daily, uh, what do you call? Um, so, like, a references for uh, the fact that what you were doing in that city? You yes. Were kind of... So uh, I, I knew. So what I need to get to is Nairobi, right? Right. In order to get there, um, you have to be put on the right kind of vehicle with the right kind of people, so that in case something happened, uh, somebody will help you. So you had to kind of get a lay of the Navigate. land and kind of figure out how do yes. I connect with the right people that right. will get me on the right yeah. vehicles. Uh, I basically went into uh, a family, so that family would arrange for my transportation from Moyale to Nairobi. Hmm. And they have to find the right kind of car. And so finally, after two weeks, so they're able to find this driver, right? Was it a driver that, because you needed to be able to find a driver you could trust, or because it needed to be a driver that fit with the story that you had of why you were in the country? Or? It's, it's a driver that knows my, my condition, not necessarily my condition, mm-hmm. but the condition of people who need to get yeah. from Moyale to Nairobi. Okay. That this is be, these people um, don't have ID, they don't speak the language, um, so there's basically certain payments that you need to make for this driver. And, and then in, he will handle it. And he will to handle get it. you there. Okay. He will handle it, right? So did he speak Oromo? He 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 spoke in Oromo language. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, so we got on this lorry, basically a giant car, um, where they had all other things. Basically, people would sit on tap, and, and uh, inside? within inside would be like cattles and things like that that they need to transport from place to place. So they export like. Um, cattles from Ethiopia to Kenya and and maybe Mm -hmm. some other places as well. So this is a nice cover. So usually people who tend this kind of thing. So you're tending the cattle. Yeah, I know there were a lot of people on it, uh, but it was 
it was kind of accepted, but it's not like he would number of people. It's okay. still few people yeah. that would sit on that. And from time to time, there are checkpoints. The Kenyan police would uh, stop the car and check people, uh, people's ID and so forth. Okay. And the police are not so much into um, adhering to the law. They just want to know who doesn't have ID so that they could make some money. Get a bribe. Of, yes. Okay. <laughs> so you arrive into Nairobi mm-hmm. uh, in this caravan and yep. um, with the cattle mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And you don't speak Swahili. Yep. And you don't know anybody there. Mm-hmm. What do you do like how so do you Na- Nairobi is a big city right just like any other yeah. cities uh, that we know of you know New York Chicago mm-hmm. it's a big city but the good thing in, in this case for me my family uh, like my uncle knows that I left uh, Moyale and my ETA is going to be around this day so he's in, ahead of you he, he's ahead of me he's okay. already there right um, so when I arrived in, in Nairobi at a specific check, you know, checkpoint, my family is waiting for me already. Like my uncle and uh, relatives were waiting for so me. You so had some I didn't. Yeah, I had. Okay. So that was pretty easy. And so then you're there for a year and a half. Yep. And did you learn Swahili while I you did. were there? I did. I did. I worked um, while I was there. So I worked like in a restaurant. Um, so that was actually the best way place to pick up language so on a day-to-day basis you converse with people with strangers and pretty soon actually I was able to speak well while I was there now do you also are you learning other languages at this time do you are you learning uh, English um, no at this point you you when you moved there you only spoke your own I, language I spoke or, uh, when I lived in Ethiopia I spoke Romo Amharic which is a national language at the t- uh, for Ethiopia and I also learned English but I would my, my English was is not a spoken English. More it was book. written book written, uh, yeah. rules uh-huh. type of thing. Okay. Um, but in in Kenya, I actually just focused on Swahili. Swahili. Yeah. So, at what point did you have the opportunity to come to the U.S.? So, uh, as soon as we arrived there, uh, there is a process you would apply to United Nations, and you would make your case. There are multiple. Um, uh, stages of interviews to 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 make sure that your story kind of checks out so you immediately uh, go and apply and, register, and start yes. that process yes. and it takes a year and a half yes. to be approved yes and sometimes for some people it, it takes and years. years and years yeah. and may yeah. not come yeah so we got lucky um in the year 2000 we were able to come to minnesota wonderful so you arrived in minnesota was it winter when you arrived it was fall Okay. So we arrived in, in September, um, around September 19 or something. Um, it was kind of, uh, it's a little bit chilly, but it was it was similar to a temperature that, you know, I'm used to. Yeah. But that winter, even though the natives would tell us that the, the winter of uh, 2000 was probably, in terms of uh, snow, mm-hmm. snowfall, um, the record of something I don't know in a decade or so. There just we had so many snows uh, that year. So for I, I really never th- expected the the level of snow and accumulation that <laughs> on the first year. So yeah. 
Um, ooh, that must have I, been a shock to come and when have we, such harsh conditions. When we were in Kenya, so there is an orientation, right? So they will tell you about all of these things. Okay. So uh, Minnesota is going to be cold, and this is how you're going to deal with it. And they will show you little movies, clips here and there. So I, but I never really believed them. So I thought when I, when I saw the snow, I know this can't be real. They just making up exaggerating things. Yeah. <laughs> it was real and more. <laughs> Beyond what they had described. Yes. So when you arrived, <clears throat> when you were applying to come to the U.S., mm -hmm. did you have a choice of what part of the U.S.? Did you have any family or contacts already in this region? Or? Uh, we did have contact, like my uncle had contact, um, his friend who, who lives here. Um, but in general, actually, you don't have a say on where to go. We got lucky mm -hmm. um, to come to Minnesota. Minnesota happened to be accepting refugees at that time. We came and uh, kind of never looked back, actually. So what was it like? I mean, obviously, the winter was really harsh right from the beginning there. Mm -hmm. But what was it like in general, learning a, a new language mm -hmm. and um, a different... I mean, you've already adjusted to living in Kenya and now you're adjusting again to living in the US and each mm -hmm. place is different. Mm -hmm. uh, what was it like moving here and yeah. what were the things that kind of stood out as really surprising you yeah. or really being a, a stark difference from the way you grew up or mm -hmm. things that you expected? The first thing was language. right? So all along, because I went to school, I, I, I thought I knew English language. right? Mm -hmm. And I have interacted with people who um, uh, who spoke English. So my agency, like a Lutheran social service, I was able to converse well and, and help the family in doing so. But quickly I figured out the American English was very different and my English was not spoken English. So um, people spoke faster. Mm. Um, now I think about the uh, Minnesotans <laughs> English was not probably as fast as I probably I don't know if, what I do if actually uh, if I instead landed in New York or something yes. or right, <laughs> <in this school. laughs> but I so felt really like people talking. spoke much faster and I just couldn't yeah. catch up mm -hmm. uh, with their conversation uh, at times so I said I really decided well I don't know this language I thought I knew, I don't know, so I, I need to get into school. So I immediately, after we, we arrived in September, in October, we got into school. So we went to uh, a school called Leap Academy. It was in downtown St. Paul. It's an international school where you see kids from all over the world, like from, from Africa, from Asia, uh, Latin America. Uh, just uh, looks like a United Nation. Um, uh, but its primary focus is language. But um, So I went to that school, and I did that for a year. And after a year, I think, uh, because I had some foundational mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, foundations of English, so I, was, I thought I could do. I could move to mainstream schools, uh, high school. So I went to Arlington High School for, for my high school. And I graduated from high school back in 2003. Excellent. Yeah. And then you went on to college and yes. graduate school. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, just have really made a life here. Um, <clears throat> so um, you told me a little bit about your education um, and kind of how you arrived at 
um, wanting to do engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what was it that interested you in, in that field and, Mm -hmm. um, kind of what has your experience been kind of pursuing that? Mm -hmm. So my, my interest, uh, because I was working as soon as I came in, um, uh, they came in in 2000 and in 2002 I had the opportunity to do an internship um, uh, with a science-based company and there I met so many people right who were there who studied and practicing engineering and so I was interested that's kind of piqued my interest and mm-hmm. I naturally I'm naturally interested in math and science mm-hmm. and so I love the subject so I said, I will pursue this, and I could turn it into, you know, unemployment too. So I started, um, as soon as I got into college, I done with my generals, I wanted to get into material science and engineering. Um, so I did, um, from high school, um, my senior year, I went to Concordia University, St. Paul. I studied there for, for a year uh, while I was in, sc- in high school through a PSEO program. And then I said one more year, finish my programs, and there it's a liberal arts school, so they didn't have any engineering program, so I transferred to the U- University of Minnesota. Um, so there I continued my science, material science and engineering program. And it, I, I believe it's actually paid off uh, for me. Um, I finished college in, back in 2007. It was actually... Um, it was not an easy time, right? So it's around the time where our economy recession was hitting, uh, economic downturn. Mm-hmm. But I was able to find a job um, mm-hmm. right away. So, and that has to do with the field and the um, reputation and experience that I've established with the company. So uh, it really helped me out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... What has life been like living in Minnesota now that you have been here for many years and mm-hmm. um, you have more perspective? Yeah. Have you sound like you, you said that you didn't look back, so yeah. you've enjoyed living here? I really enjoyed living here um, because of many reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one, around the family. So Minnesota is home to the largest Oromo community outside of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual number is not really known, but it's around 20,000 Oromos in the Twin Cities. Um, mm. And that gives you some comfort in terms of people you interact with mm-hmm. and the, give you the right kind of environment. So the number is so big, we actually have a, a name for Minnesota. Do you know what the name is? Little Oromia. Oh. Little Oromia. Um, um, so that's one aspect. Um, the second thing is I'm very far- fortunate to find a professional job in my field that I love, that I, people I love to work with, um, right close to my home. And that also another dimension that helped me stay and reestablish myself uh, in Twin Cities. Um, so it has really worked out for me, and I can connect with, uh, with, with, with anyone at the community level, at the professional level. So it's kind of really the nice mm-hmm. balance. You um, stay in touch with your roots by having yes. that community yes. to plug into. Absolutely. 
and at the same time when when i when i said uh, i've never looked back i'm speaking more in terms of not living in minnesota uh, but i i went back to ethiopia multiple times mm-hmm. right to to, to, to visit the family, family. yeah and, and and do projects there even Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the projects that you've done in back home? My first project was around school, right? So back in 2010, I just for the first time in about 10 years or so, uh, probably 12 years from my hometown, uh, I visited Ethiopia just to, to see my family. So that's the first time I had a chance to go because before that I was in a school and just trying to make a living. Um, in that trip, I made a point to meet with you know different uh, people, my community, not just relatives, but also the schools I went to, uh, the communities and, and different areas, the government and so forth. Um, so in my kind of listening tour, if you will, um, I have I came across this school in rural southern Ethiopia. It's called Kobadi. It's not my town. It's about 90 kilometers or so away from my my, my hometown where the school was uh, struggling for a long time and uh, in terms of additional classrooms. So the school was built 10 years prior and it's only up to fourth grade. So you can, the level of education in this village is fourth grade education. The whole village? The the whole village. So they are far from the capital, uh, the main city, which is Nagele. And, and there's no one else to teach because that's the highest level. That's the highest level. But the community wants additional classrooms. And the school is actually not built by government. It was uh, built by an NGO um, back then. So the, the community would make an appeal to the government. And the government say we don't have a budget uh, to do it. And they couldn't. The community themselves couldn't uh, build school on their own financially. It's just not capable. And they're also not able to send their children to, to the city and support them there. So when I, when I came in, they, they made an appeal to me. And uh, one of the, the, the elder men said, you know, um, he's um, our grandparents, uh, our fathers, didn't get the opportunity to go to school uh, because, I mean, we were historically marginalized uh, because I can give you more background there. There is resistance and uprising in the South. Because of that, the government really shut them down of education mm. and infrastructure and so forth. They created a divide uh, for yes. any advancement Absolutely. in education. So, but this old men were saying they didn't get the chance because they were always... Uh, in resistance and and you know respond to government harsh uh, measures, mm-hmm. and he said our generation, my generation also didn't get opportunity um, just because of as a result of that, and now he sees our children has um, have the same fate, mm-hmm. and he was just you know tearing as as he was saying that we wish we could just add one additional classroom here. You know, just like as a way of hope, yeah. can we just add one classroom? And at the time, uh, I was like, I don't know, I can't build a school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's probably outside of my, my area. But but that story kind of stuck with me. And I saw the children and I know I met kids in fourth grade and I interviewed them. Um, 
one girl repeated fourth grade for three consecutive years, right? Wow. Not because she couldn't pass the class and she loved she the school. She just want to go to school, mm-hmm. right? And so that story, when I came back, stuck with me. I couldn't forget, and I tried to connect with whomever I can, and I found an, uh, an NGO in, in St. Paul. Back then it was called Lift Kids. And we worked on uh, kind of like how to build a sustainable village. So mm-hmm. um, with all what is education, things around basic needs, some sort of income generating, um, you know, business a community could own that can help them continue this, you know, education, you know, water, shelter, and uh, health, uh, some sort of um, health. We worked on that for about a year and a half, um, kind of applied everywhere to, you know, this grant, uh, to trying to look for financial support mm-hmm. to, to do that project. The project was not successful because um, nobody wanted to fund and people don't know much about the village. And um, so at the end, uh, it was, so we had volunteers, like about a dozen or so people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, high college students, some uh, as local experts, business from business and so forth. We end up final, uh, finally just three of us, like me and my friend Ram Krishnan, uh, who is an Indian descent, met, you know, he's lived here almost his whole life in Minnesota, um, entrepreneur, and then Joseph, who was the um, chairman of this organization. So Ram had a lot of experience doing rural development in India. Hmm. And and he had an idea, so he said, you know what, Abdul, um, yes, we didn't get all this funding. Mm-hmm. I will contribute $5,000 to this project um, wow. to just get started, do what we can. You know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not willing to give up on this project. But he really believed in it. He really believed in it. Yeah. So he said, I believe you and believe in what, in what you do. So both Joseph and I were kind of surprised. Like, are you sure? Yeah. We never really thought all along for about a year and a half that we're working on this. We never really occurred to us, actually, we can do something. We were always looking for externally, how could we find something big that we could turn into this village and make it some big project. Right, right there and then I said, okay, I will come up with another $5,000 and we, we're going to go do this project. Wow, and off amazing. we went after a few few months and uh, he and I actually went um, to to the village and told them we've got some small help for you but you actually have to lead this project and you have to invest and you have to um, now put uh, you know your resources where your mouth is and they did Wow so did you ask the village to match the dollar, the money that you raised, or to um, what kind of you know responsibility did they have to mm-hmm. make this successful? Yeah. Was it actually building it, or was it financial, or was it upkeep? Both. Mm-hmm. We asked for for both. So we actually withheld what we brought until we see what they would do for this village for their children, because Smart. one of the things that struck me about the village was because I've talked to many other village and schools as well how unified this village was 
Mm, in terms important. of yeah. identifying this is the number one need for this village mm. when I talk to teachers when I talk to students uh, elders uh, government even government officials like local village uh, level administrators everybody was saying the same thing um, <coughs> so when we come they said we will do everything we can we're not gonna go home until this school is done literally so right there in front of us they did fundraising mm. uh, whoever had money contribute um, money other contribute you know like goats sheep whatever they had other contributed uh, grain from whatever they produced and and the rest of them said we will c we, we live in a rural uh, village we don't have to buy um, like the the rocks and and the stones that needed to for part as part of the building we can we just collect it. We can build them. We can collect them. Water, we can get them. We just need a car probably to pick it up and drop it off where we, where we are. Um, so they took on all the labor uh, building material that they could find locally. Um, we put our the money we brought more toward buying things that they couldn't get on their own. Um, that. Um, uh, Things like skilled, uh, you know, the the planner and the and, and the carpenter who can who can design and, and build the place and some material that they couldn't get on their own. Right? Mm -hmm. So we purchased material for them and said, here you go. Um, and there was some leftover m money, so we opened a bank account. Uh, we had you know three elders and a teacher in charge uh, of the money to to com to complete the, the building. So. Three weeks after we returned to U.S., we had a building erected. Wow. Um, and they literally uh, lived up to what they said. That fall, we went in February. Uh -huh. That fall, the school, and they started teaching uh, fifth and sixth grade. And the government saw that, and they gave them teachers and, and resources uh, um, to, 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 to continue yeah. this, which was really great for the community. Um, and they saved up that money, uh, whatever left of uh, after buying the furniture mm -hmm. and everything else. A year later, they added two additional classrooms. Um, wow. uh, you know, eighth, seventh, and eighth grade. Um, so you doubled the number yes. of classrooms yes. that were there in just a year. Yes, it was much more than what we anticipated, what uh -huh. I anticipated, and what even they anticipated. Um, so I kind of see it like. We in what I learned from the project is that first we can do something, and yes. I can do something even even if it's a little. Mm -hmm. uh, let's not wait for somebody. And they realized actually there is a lot they could do because mm -hmm. they used their own money and they did additional fundraising, and they also asked a government to do a matching for them. So yeah. they were just it's like they were unleashed you yeah, know you created they momentum were, yeah that kept uh, going absolutely yeah so have you built any other projects or been involved in additional education projects or anything in so the, the, that was that was it for uh, for education mm -hmm. and uh, what i really wanted to see with that project was community ownership and they they yeah, learned that they went on and and we made it a goal, Ram and I, before we went, so that they own it, mm -hmm. right? So um, part of the thing that actually uh, that Ram kind of instilled in me was, he said, you know, Abdullah, if you go to this village and we build this fancy school, 
and people said, wow, look at this beautiful school. There is no way we could build this school, you know, if it weren't for these Americans. They said, we failed, mm-hmm. we, we failed, and this is how we're gonna measure our success. But if he said, if the village said, we could build, heck, we could build this on our own, why do we even need this, uh, uh, these Americans to That's come all the way at. here to, yeah. to, to build a school? That is a success. So that yeah. is exactly what happened with that project. But since then, I, uh, I was looking for ways to do more with the school we started and trying to meet other needs. Mm-hmm. So Solar Light is the other project, the next project that I worked on. That's so amazing. You know, I think so many organizations intend to do really good things that mm-hmm. are needed in, mm-hmm. in these communities that are things that they identify mm-hmm. as lacking yeah. or as a priority, mm-hmm. but they fail to do exactly what you guys did, mm-hmm. which is to let the community identify where are their priorities. Yes. And own the project yes um because there's there's a dignity and a pride Mm -hmm. to having been part of a project like that that Mm -hmm. is so successful Mm -hmm. um that will maintain the success of the project and build momentum like you saw happen yes like yes that you built two classrooms Mm -hmm. they found matching funds and saved money and got you know got more people to contribute and build and i hear so many stories of organizations Mm -hmm. that were like well we decided that this is what we want to do here or we had a donor that wanted to do this (laughs) and it's not successful because there isn't that community buy-in yes and i think that that's something that comes with perspective both mm-hmm. you and ram come from communities where there's mm-hmm. like strong community buy-in in mm-hmm. the pro- in the projects and so you understand mm-hmm. the success of this project depends on that yes um and so i love hearing success stories like that where yeah. these kids were so hungry to go to school and yes they're they're able to now because you did this step they took this step the government gave them teachers you know it kind of went forward from there yeah um and now you have a legacy of helping to create um additional uh, you know higher education Mm -hmm. for for these kids that is going to totally change their future so yeah yeah i mean yeah you reminded me i was i was saying like kids who are hungry so this comes kids come uh, to school on foot, right? And the vi- this school is in the middle of the village. Uh-huh. So they, they walk literally hour, up to hour and a half to get to this school. It's not like our, our school here where there is lunch and, and, right. and drink and all. They would come, they would wake up, eat whatever they need to eat or drink for the day and walk hour and hour to get to school on foot and stay all day uh, in school and then walk back. But nobody actually, so if, if I go with the mindset of from here, uh, from United States, I would say like, they don't have water, they don't have food. But that was not the problem that they talked about. They talked about not having additional classroom to, to be able to continue. It was like hope, it was much bigger than that. 
yeah. even though there are these other problems that I could see that I wanted to do something about. Yeah. But that's not what they complained about. So that was focusing on what they really needed was um, it really paid off. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing about that. Um, so tell me about your current project that you're working on. You mm-hmm. are writing a book mm-hmm. and you are telling the it's it's partially a history of your people mm-hmm. and of your family's involvement in politics mm-hmm. and being persecuted and tell me more about about this project yeah so i, I it's a book uh, i'm writing it's more biographical mm-hmm. and i'm using my uncle as a proxy to to tell this story and the reason I wanted to make it a real book, um, a real biography and history of the people, I think people would would choose probably like a novel to, to be able to tell a similar story. I chose to make it a real story about, about the people because I wanted to give these people um, a name and in, uh, in, in their struggle have, there are people who are sacrificed, there are uh, things that happen to places and to people and that people it's worthwhile for people to know and in short that what the book is trying to do is tell the history of the Oromo people in Ethiopia mm-hmm. um, it for the most part it's a history of subjugation so mm-hmm. just on a, on a high level right um, southern Ethiopia was incorporated into the modern day Ethiopia um, late uh, 18, uh, around 1886-87, between 1886 to 1889 or so. Yeah, before that, the Oromo people lived uh, in southern, eastern, and central Ethiopia, current-day Ethiopia. Uh, they had their own uh, system of governance. Um, they had their own way of living. So they called their system of governance uh, Gada system. Right, so under this kind of system where leadership transferred peacefully from one leader to another every eight years. Uh, similar to election is not quite election, but it's only men involvement. Mm-hmm. But it's an egalitarian, ancient um, system of governance, close to a democratic system. Um, and then they, they would live... Uh, they are connected, um, loosely connected. They have this tribal organization... Um, clan organization there are many layers of this and then they are connected throughout the wherever they lived but this the northerner system invasion by the way coincides right when the the European colonial powers also uh, were uh, dividing up Africa right Mm -hmm. at the same time this is where this is happening so it disrupted the way of life for the Oromos in the south. Basically, mm. their way of life was kind of replaced with um, uh, the northerners, the Amhara and the Tigris way of life, and their religion was uh, imposed on them. Another language, another culture was imposed on them. Mm. This didn't just happen peacefully, actually. It's actually war happened. Yeah. Um, nobody knows exact name, uh, but different historians would say, like, millions of people died 
in, in wow. this quest and uh, conquest. Trying but to preserve their to, yeah. religion and their culture. Right, and th their land. The way of life. But after a while, they, they have been overpowered. Mm. Um, and then these northerners turn the Oromos and others in the south to basically slaves um, to uh, give them the land, produce and, and feed it to them uh, over taxation. Uh, but the people never really accepted, right? So there was a resistance uh, from here and there. Uh, that kind of, uh, with time, right, kind of went from diplomatic uh, resistance to full-blown armed struggle in 1960s. Um, so that's kind of what the book's trying to cover, the stories, the little small stories. And I'm using, uh, because it was too broad to focus just on history, I focused on the family that's at the center of all of this resistance um, to tell the story of kind of from the beginning uh, of 1900 up until kind of now. Wow, that sounds like a really difficult project mm -hmm. to gather all the information to yes. accurately tell things that happened over such a large span of time, mm -hmm. but also through conflict and, you know, culture shifting and all these right. things that it's hard to find things that were written down. Absolutely. And likely thing, you know, history was in several different languages, mm -hmm. being recorded from different sides. Mm -hmm. And how did you sift through all of that and kind of find the information you needed? <laughs> did you have a lot of it passed down through people you had the ability to talk to firsthand or mm -hmm. did you have majority of it came through research mm -hmm. or is it kind of been a combination because I know you're focusing mm -hmm. on a, a biographical account of mm -hmm. um, the history through you know the the last few decades has mm -hmm. been mm -hmm. through a first person account yes how did you find the information you needed for this project that is a challenging part of this project. There's actually nothing written about these people in, in general. And wow. So this is the first This is the first piece. Book that's been written. The, the first written in my opinion there are probably one or two um, uh, re uh, writers who mm -hmm. kind of scratch the surface basically touched that this thing existed like the rebellion the ballet rebellion there is another who, who wrote really well um Tarek Gabru, um, who wrote the book. So it was kind of like a little chapter um, mm -hmm. in there. But other than that, actually, it was this part of the uh, struggle and resistance kind of ignored by, by scholars um, of all kinds, not just the Ethiopian scholars, but also even the Oromo scholars. So there isn't, I couldn't just go to library and pick up a book yeah. and read about it. So what I instead focused on, uh, which is also good news from the other side, is the oral history. So mm -hmm. this book is about oral history of the people, mm. the way they heard it. Um, like my uncle um, has witnessed part of this the last, uh, probably he was born in mid-1950s. So he would know something starting from 1960s, his, kind of, his family right in the middle of this resistance mm -hmm. and uprising. So he would know things beyond that, right? Mm -hmm. But things before that, there are things he heard from his father mm -hmm. and things his father heard from his father. Um, and, and he also spent a lot of time 
with many of the people who led those movements. Mm. So as a young man, mm-hmm. he always accompanied his father. So he had a lot more, and uh, most people who would hear his name probably say like he, they always think uh, much older than he is because mm-hmm. he, he spent time with older people mm-hmm. uh, of his generation before him. So he, when it came to this, so he was a big wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to him and, uh, and capture uh, his side of the story. And the challenge is I have to take that story. Uh, he, t- he tells me this story in Oromo language, and I have to interpret it, translate it over to English. Mm. So the challenge of um, carrying all that message, uh, all that context, um, in communicating in another language is another layer of um, challenge. I imagine. So... <clears throat> So is this lang- is this book going to be published in English only, or are you looking to publish it in more than one language? At the beginning, it will be published in um, English only. So there may be another project to, to look at translating at least in in few languages, mm-hmm. um, in Oromo language and maybe a few other based on interest other languages as well. Yeah. So have any of your grandmother's stories kind of found their way into helping you write this book or are they have they found their way into the book Mm -hmm. or um did that help with telling some of the history of the country or your family absolutely so once i started the project right things i used to hear um things would start coming together Mm. i've been thinking about this for at least five years right Mm -hmm. I, i was not actively working on the whole time but I've been thinking about it whenever I uh, think of something, I will write it down and, and then I will ask questions. Uh, my uncle, his friends, people, he, you know, they spent some time together. Um, so it all kind of in, came together at the end. A um, lot of stories from my grandmother um, in there. So if I try to interview her, she probably won't take me seriously, but you know, but again, so much mm-hmm. um, things that came when I was in doing interview, <laughs> things I learned. When I was little, That's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. So, what timeline are you looking at? Are you thinking that this project is going to be done soon, or is it <laughs> proving to be a longer project than you anticipated? It's definitely taken a lot longer than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, being this is my first attempt to write a book, and I'm not. I was not into writing particularly, mm-hmm. but the stories kind of drove me, right? So mm-hmm. I, I felt because I had opportunity to go to school, uh, I, I felt, I think of it as a community service. So I felt like these stories need to be shared. So mm-hmm. I, come, I come from that perspective. Um, so it's taking me longer than what it would take other people. Um, but my goal, people still call me crazy when I tell them this. Um, my book is going to get published probably in the next few months. Uh, that's my goal. That's um, exciting. Perhaps uh, yeah, early 2020 or late 2019. That's my goal still. That's <laughs> Very ambitious, but that's yeah. that's a goal. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a real treasure that you're leaving for your community and for all of us to learn about yeah. 
um, this history that hasn't been written down. You know, yeah. I think that we we all stand to gain so much from hearing each other's stories, mm-hmm. and it connects people when you can understand mm-hmm. the history and the context, mm-hmm. and it it helps to to build on from there. So yeah, I, I was really angry, right? So I was angry, that's why I wrote this book. Like nobody has written, nobody tried to capture for whatever reason. So I wanted to change that. But I also know that there are people probably, if they see, if there's some reference, who can kind of build on this work, like you said, mm-hmm. um, and take this to the next level. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping my work could serve as maybe a basis for someone to do more research in this area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I'm excited to read the book when it comes out. You'll be the first <laughs> to have it. <laughs> I will look for my advanced copy. Yes, <laughs> done. Consider it done. Uh, well, I want to ask you a couple things um, mm-hmm. before we wrap up here. Mm-hmm. One, I'm I'm always really interested to hear people's perspective of having come to the U.S. for the first time. What are things that they would recommend? Like how could we better those who are living in the community that you're coming into mm-hmm. how could those people better anticipate what the needs are of people coming to that area how could they integrate better and it, you know because i feel like so many times when we don't know it doesn't occur mm-hmm. to us to mm-hmm. do certain things or to and i know that everyone's experience is so different because there's so many different cultures they're coming from or different experiences mm-hmm. But from your experience, mm-hmm. what is something that would have made that transition easier for you or that you would recommend for someone else who's either coming in or to the community that is receiving mm-hmm. people who are coming in? Do you have any insights on that? I, I think that's, that's an excellent uh, question because when we first arrived, right? So I would say the things that are necessary, probably there is you can't plan everything so i would say flexibility and commitment willingness to help so i'll give you an example so when we first arrived here um, a gentleman matt smith a young man he's in probably um, in his 20s so he was studying um, he's a bible student uh, working through illustration social service so he really took on our family so he was looking for home uh, for us we a large family you know uh, some of the apartments won't take us because like you know how where can you put 12 people mm. right so he put us in uh, relatives um, some of the people we knew house but they also have very small house it couldn't fit 12 addition no house can take additional 12 people right so he he was really always committed to looking for a solution right so he reached out to his friend uh, Mary Bozell, who was actually um, also studying at uh, Luther uh, Seminary, not too far from here, uh, around Como. So he was he took us to in the seminary there. We lived in that apartment uh, for a few weeks until he he found a permanent place for us. So this just ability for people to and flexibility and commitment to handle whatever comes to them right every family is unique 
their needs are unique, but um, we just need to be open and be willing to find for a solution. So Matt would do that. He would, he would day in, day out, he would call, he would go to places until he find us. Mary would take care of us like she would, um, she would be at school all day, but in the evening she would come spend time with us. She would take us to, to her home. Um, she even, you know, took us to places for, for shopping, um, to, to apply for jobs. And you, we just need, so that was kind of our first phase of the United States, if you will, Minnesota, where these two people, Matt and Mary, and, and my uncle would say, if everybody was, uh, I wish everybody was just like Matt and, and Mary, you know, they were, because they were just so uh, uh, embraced us mm-hmm. and they were willing to look for solutions, whatever it took, they, they never gave up and they were always um, willing to help. That's what I would say, like it's a mindset almost, like not what you would prepare, almost of a mindset of flexibility and commitment mm-hmm. to, to help. That's wonderful. I, I wish more people were like Matt and Mary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we could all be that adaptable, seeking to serve and mm-hmm. welcoming. You yeah. know, I think her, we'd be in a better place. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I'm glad that they were there for you and, mm-hmm. and your family and helped ease that transition a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I do like to ask everyone is... So this podcast is called The Way Life Should Be. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are so many different things that kind of fall under that mm-hmm. umbrella mm-hmm. of things that we're seeking towards or, or pursuing in our own lives or that are really meaningful to us. And I want to know, what does that mean to you? What does the way life should be yeah. mean to you? To me, it's, it is a willingness for us to to find a way to contribute in any way you can. So we each have our own, if we think about our life and our experiences, our own niches. And how could we contribute um, you know, in service of others um, one way or another? And and my thing is like to, to get impatient, like in terms of when you're gonna contribute. Uh, I don't wanna wait until I retire from work and, and then focus on that aspect. I wanna do um, as I go. Mm-hmm. I wanna contribute as I go. I wanna learn and build experience and trying to do that this book and that project is kind of example of that. I'm just trying different things. Um, so willingness to to do that. So the the quote I like um, when it comes to this is uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know who said it. I wish I said it uh, is we rise by lifting others, mm-hmm. and I think we need to find our own way of contributing to to the communities where we live. Um, find a way you can you can contribute. That's what it means to me. Things Robert, Robert, Robert uh, Ingersoll, or so who said, so we rise by lifting others. So find a way to to help others. You also help yourself in in the process. I love that. I feel like we live in a constant competition, mm-hmm. and 
act like all resources are limited yeah. and we fail to realize how much our lives are enriched mm -hmm. by adding value and contribution to those around us. And so I love that you are doing things that are preserving history and mm -hmm. providing education and, you know, giving back to the community in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we've all been given different experiences mm -hmm. and different talents mm -hmm. and it's not because we are the best at something <laughs> yep. that we can give back. Yes. But it's because we have, we all have a story to tell mm -hmm. and we all have ways that we can help lift others, like mm -hmm. you said. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm excited that um, this book is coming out and that um, that's going to, you know, be a, you know, a piece, a piece of history. Uh, I hope so. And I, I know you do in your line of work as well. Um, a lot of um, community work um, contributing uh, in, in your way through humanitarian work and, and others. So I just that is, I think, um, you know, example of what I want to see and a model, you know, I want to follow. Right. So contributing in any way we can. Um, with what we're given, as you said, right? Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, thanks. You've been listening to the way life should be. Music written by Jenny and Tyler, entitled "Love Through Me." Follow us online at Life B Podcast for updates. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much for listening.